Hello and welcome to uh, welcome to Pablo's channel. Uh, today the date is the twenty seventh of March. I'm recording from the mezzanine. It is five to eight p.m. Uh, I've just been to the beat, doing a bit of sexual health triaging on the phones and um, a bit of reception work, Harvey, we call it Harvey's. Sometimes we can do a full day of one of them, today I've got to do half it. And yeah, there you go. The music in the background, I'm playing on my, uh, through the Google device. Um, it's alpha, called Alpha Centauri by Tangerine Dream, one of the earliest ones, 1971 this one was done. So, there's a quick introduction of the environment, and let's dive straight into uh, the five ages of man. The psychology of human history, boys and girls, by Gerald Hurd. Um, and I've read the introduction. Now we're going to go into the first chapter, which is looking at the psychological story of social man. Number one, chapter one. The pre-individual, co-conscious man. In the, in the introduction, we have presented the basis of a faith in the future of mankind. We have given the reasons for believing that, through those exercises, techniques, practices and education whereby conduct, character and consciousness can now be developed to total capacity, man's behaviour may at last be commensurate with his powers. Now and first we must present the outline of human philology, philogeny, philogeny, philogeny. And once this is clear, we may view history as an increasingly accelerated and coordinated process whereby the two sides of man's nature, individual man and social man, man with self-consciousness and man with a preta consciousness, critical man and creative man, have been kept in reciprocal play until they are perfectly balanced. But this is not all. We may also find in the individual development, in specific human ontogeny, in the process stages of each person's lifetime sequences, the recapitulation and finally the extrapolation of man's story and destiny. Here lies the only real cure for our present discouragement with ourselves. The first discoveries that man had a past, that his present was mainly ruled by the, that past, that that rulership was largely a mort main, a dead hand, a husk of prejudices, a taboos, 
misapprehensions, irrational fears and cowardly dislikes led to dismay. Most historians felt during those brief times when momentary order permitted an educated leisure in which to study the past, that we clung precariously to a raft of reason, or rather to a quaking sagasso coil of floating sea rack, which, between storms, permitted the creamy scum of culture to gather on the surface of a deep that would soon again be churned by the blasts of Bavarian violence. This crude idea that mankind's story begins with barbarism, achieves occasional civilization, and relapses periodically into the barbarian magma out of which it's cooled, was of course an application to history of the Indian ascetic Sank- Sankhya. Sankhya? That's uh, S-A-N-K-H-Y-A. Sankhya dualistic philosophy of a cosmos perpetually oscillating between Prakriti and Purusha. Uh, Prakriti is spelled P-R-A-K-R-I-T-I and Purusha is P-U-R-U-S-H-A which is matter and energy, form and flux. Vico, the 17th and 18th century Neapolitan historian, 1668-1744, had perceived with extraordinary insight, aided by studies of epic literature and hints from the Sumerian fragments embedded in the Hebrew Pentateuch, uh, that beside and behind the saga and epic ages lay another epoch that was as different from barbarism as barbarism was alien to civilization. Vico's insight, however, had to wait until this century to become convincing and to wean historians from their taste for melodrama, for self-pitying tragedy. Now, such discoveries as those made by Arthur Evans of the Minoan culture, which was millennia previous to and far more lasting than its successor, the Hellenic, classical Greece, together with those made about the Severian and Indus, Indus cultures and the Shang dynasty in China, have made historians realise that there was a proto-history where man lived in a cultured society compacted largely by co-conscious suggestion. A suggestion hypnotically so powerful that I have called this form of government a hypnocracy. And anthropology was able to add confirmation to this discovery. In central Australia and later in Papua, tribes were found living a balanced life, which, though at the price of the inhibition of experiment and adventure, avoided the self-willed violence of the epic barbarian. The discovery of these still surviving food-gathering cultures helped, still further in the understanding of the prehistoric ages brought to light by the slow studies of flint implements. For example, 
by Boucher de Perf Studies of the Chelian Flints on the Somme Terraces and the later studies of the Edetic, uh, edetic uh, imagery from the fresco artists in the Dodong Caves. Um, that's D O R D O G N E. Ab Buil. Here, there can be no doubt there was not only another type of culture, there was another quality of consciousness. Beside the unreflective, boastful violence of the barbarian and the critical constructiveness of the civilised man, there was also at least, and back of them both, it is reasonable to surmise, a third type of mind that was a pre-critical but creative, pre-individual but considerate. In short, today we find ourselves to be the first generation able to walk on the floor of history. We are the first civilization that can at last see the foundation on which all mankind's cultural development has been reared, that can understand the basic and balanced adjustments to landscape environment, to fellowship community that were made by our super animal ancestor, that speechful, tool extending and depending, fire fencing and focusing cre- creature, proto man. And this fuller, more complete knowledge of our story has produced two further insights. The first is one of the main supports of our hope for and faith in the future of man. This is the fact that the story has accelerated so intensely. Today our generation can add an epoch to the saga of mankind by the way that each one of us lives out his individual span. The second insight is complementary to the first. The history of man is not to be understood as being a survival by violence, drum and trumpet history. Man is man, the supreme animal, because of his teachability, his openness of mind. And this is not only a firm part of his biological structure, it is built up in his entire development. Nor again, can, can be understood and his story explained by saying that he is an accident of economy, that all his culture has risen from his physical necessities. It is true that his art and his science have aided his physical survival, but only because he has been fascinated by form and because his curiosity has forced him to pursue knowledge of his environment. Human history if we are to understand it, is psychological history. Man works and his instruments are the silt lines of his mind's currents, the tide marks of his consciousness. At first, it is as slow as the rivulets that ooze from the melting fringes of glaciers, but it carries, in solution, the rich alluvium of the ice-ground rock that is to say, the primary community's fluidity of response, its capacity to understand its environment and to react to it with a modifying conduct is equaled and kept within social bounds by the fact that all its precepts are automatically censored by concepts. In other words, means and meaning are kept in creative play because 
All individual apprehensions of the outer world are, as it were, seen through the condensing lens made by the apprehensions of the entire tribe. Only those things that make sense can be noticed and remembered. Anomalies do not register, at least not as exceptions that might disturb the rule, 36-39, and if the Abervillian food hunting, food gathering paleolithic dates from 450 BC, 450,000 BC, and if the first agricultural society begins at about 10,000 BC, this means that man's gradual change in consciousness continued for something like 440,000 years. So in the first vast epoch of man's history, his religious capacity, his ability to make sense, kept pace with this, his scanning power, his ability to grasp new facts about his environment. His, this capacity for making sense was both compositional and sensorial. In other words, although man at this point rejected data too odd to, to even up with ordinary experience or to fit in with antecedent probability, the anomaly was not treated with horror disgust or contempt. These are later reactions and they summon such, summon such strong resistance because the data can no longer be denied. At the start, the mind of man was like the subhuman mammal consciousness. It recorded memorably only what had been repeated to it often enough. Just as through the night hours the photographic plate that is put into the telescope camera in order to record a star that is invisible to the naked eye gradually soaks up sufficient photons to retain an image. So some natural event brought persistently enough to his attention at last made an enduring impression on the mind of early man. And since man is not only the most curious of the mammals but also the one most inclined to communicate, and because his mind at this point was not wholly inelastic, this gave him sufficient time to bring his new discoveries to the attention of others and agree with them on an explanation. However, the elasticity of wonder is a child factor and always stands in danger of being lost. Our tradition grows by its successful incorporation of data, an incorporation increasingly expressed in the rigid form of words rather than in the comparatively free medium of responsive behaviour. Tradition grows self-assured and stiff. The more successful the solutions prove to be, the more they tend to become comprehensively final answers, provisional responses, for the occasional fossilised into repressive dogmas. Those who have had the most experience, those Hartwood Rubber veterans, as the Romans later called such seasoned sergeants, who, because they have survived more dangers and are therefore less inclined to panic, and whose stubbornness makes them invaluable when the younger are alarmed and retreat have the large vice of their rigid virtue. In a moving world, they must trust movement. 
They will not give ground, but neither will they open ranks and advance. On the other hand, the younger members of the tribe, because they are young, tend to grow in curiosity. Curiosity that is whetted by each new success of the tribe in extending its exploration farther afield, and thereby bringing itself up against more and more anomalies. But the failure of the old to give the young an expanded explanation, to set, compose and frame the newfound data, makes for either subservience or secret doubt. The extension of the lifespan into old age, owing to easier economic conditions, must already have meant, as it means so gravely today, an overwhelming disbalance of the social values in the direction of fear, suspicion, arrest and reaction. On these grounds alone, the sum of human enterprise and happiness must have been steadily diminished. Unless some method was known whereby voluntary death might be brought on among those who have finished their usefulness. Plenty of cases are now known, from the Eskimo to the Pygmies of the central uh, forest of Africa, who, when conditions are too severe for the tribe to preserve the ailing and costly old, do abandon. Uh, however, the fisher of the primal mind was postponed and the pressures contained longer, which made the ultimate burst catastrophic when it did come. This delay seems to have been due, at least in part, to the growth of language, which was also largely responsible for the hardening of the right into the dogmatic spell. After the first choruses of co-encouragement more phatic than informative, speech became increasingly instructive, but was still used mainly for emotional purposes. However, because of its great success as a descriptive, informative instrument, the word tends to become definitory. The, the defining term, sooner or later, becomes definitive, terminal, final. Language, because it became descriptive of separate objects, could not deal with succession. Mathematics, with its calculus, is needed for that. So there can be little doubt that the first sense of the power holding things together, of the way things go, now, uh, of the growth process, is pananimistic. It not only is everywhere, it is equally pervasively diffused through oneself and it dilates one's entire physique. But with words came distinctions, and with distinctions came further specific, localised and concentrated attentions. The surge of life in the whole body becomes concentrated in the genitals. The ligand and the yoni become the almost obsessional foci of emotion and indeed sensation. Meanwhile, woman comes to be regarded as specific aspects of fertility. This is due in large part to the fact that she advances more slowly toward the exclusiveness of individualism. Physically, she remains less specialised in muscle and skeleton 
than the male, and her part in the reproductive function involves more of her physique and her psyche. Therefore, reproduction now becomes typified as the abundant power of parturition. In the middle Paleolithic figurines that have been found, we see depicted female physiques that are dilated into ample containers and yielders of plentiful, easy births. They are as faceless and almost as distended as the Queen Termite. From such beginnings, we can then trace the path of what we find to be fully emerged when the Paleolithic is over and the Neolithic has begun. At this point, with his management of an annual agriculture, man has become aware of time. Now, religion has become ginolatrous. That's G Y N O L A T R O U S. That is, the woman's figure is now the object of excitational adoration. The general sensing that all adults are reproductively charged has concentrated into one specific object of desire and the definitive worship of fecundity forms. The dawning capacity to reason-led, of necessity to crude, overdeveloped notions of purpose and cause. There could be only one purpose and reason for a process. The panis panspheric psychophysical rapture became increasingly to be regarded solely as a surge for reproduction. Therefore, rights had to, had to be devised to canalise this tide and to prevent its natural diffusedness. Parry Passu, such an attempt to confine the excitation to one purpose led to the feeling that the power must be confined to the one male organ that served the female's purpose. Hence, gynolatry. Gynology? G-Y-N-O-L-A-T-R-Y. Worship of woman. Inevitably leads to phallolatry. Phallolatry. Like phallus, but P-H-A-L-L-O-L-A-T-R-Y. Phallic worship. Then, as the rites become more formalised, they become divided into two. A. The food rites for increasing luck in the hunt and, and later on increased among the kept animals. Um, A. That's uh, we've got a fellow here. Miss G.R. Levy points out that even in Paleolithic cave drawings, there are pictures of penned cattle. And B, the sex rights for increasing human fecundity. To define is always to disturb what was originally an unquestioning awareness. To, be, to give reasons is equally likely to make those who are given to such explanations watch to see whether or not the reason proves to be correct and, if it does not, to suggest another. The hunting magic must have failed often. The sex magic, both by its concentration on the reproductive act and by its taboo 
against any variation in the theme. That's spelled T-A-B-U. Must have raised as many questions and caused even more serious breaches of the rules. Departures from the hunting magic might go unnoticed because these deviations will take place out in the wild open. But deviations from the reproductive magic could not long escape Inquisition in the close, close purulus, purulus, P-U-R-L-I-E-U-S, close purulus of the cave. We shall see in part three that in tribes which preserve their cohesion, which did not explode in rebel protest but continued intact, such as the Arunta in mid-Australia, there have been a method of keeping at least the leaders in touch with their own dawn or birth consciousness. While in at least one culture, the Indus, which rose to and retained civilization for at least a millennium without being disintegrated by rebellion, there was a method of reducing the fever of revolt. revolt. These cases where a ritual was devised that really gave a regressional experience and relieved, at least among the ruling caste, the mounting pressure of protesting frustration are certainly rare. However, such instances are valuable to us because they show their explosive cataclysm. Violent psychic mutational revolt is not invariably necessary. It is true that the Australian tribes have anchalosed, uh, that's A-N-C-H-Y-L-O-S-E-D, to use the phrase of Moret and Davy in From Tribe to Empire. They have become hypercomplex, rigid social structures, ruled wholly by their routine-obsessed elders, and in which there is no place for growth. And apparently the Indus culture perished from an innation uh, that may be basically similar. Yet each of these cultures had its specific psychophysical method for giving the burgeoning cultures the capacity to continue some growth without having to repress and become severed from a past that is, that is now repugnant because it has been wrongly lived through. So, as it will be suggested later, each culture did make some contribution to the problem of educating the total mind. But, in the vast majority of cases, the tribe's pattern of culture, under the pressure of the crystallising consciousness of its constituents, became the fit definitional and explanatory and this produced the conviction that every custom and habit must be pruned to fit the utilitarian purpose that the long track reasoning mind now regarded as being the whole purpose of the behaviour and where this took place the process of constriction continued finally all movement or variety became impossible and experiment, and at last, any alternative explanation became blasphemy. There was nothing left for the growing mind but death or revolt. See chapter 2, part 1, on the rise of the hero. And as the growing seed burst the pod, so the pioneers broke their way out, and the, and the emptied husk of their society finally collapsed. Still, 
Although the process whereby the proto-individual heroic self-assertive man emerged and rent the old co-conscious social structure was cataclysmic, it was slow and diffident. Reformations were repeatedly followed by counter-reformations. The old life religion, the worship of the Yoni and the Lingam, made repeated comebacks. We can trace its stubborn return in Hebraism, for instance, where we see the desert-minded prophets worshipping a sky god, sky god and butchering time and again the priesthood that worshipped the tree phallus. Elijah massacres them. So Elijah massacres them in his day. They are back in the temple again in time for Hosea, H-O-S-E-A, to denounce their libidinous rites. Rites which, in accordance with the religious custom of the time, involve his wife who goes up to the national shrine to be fertilised by the holy men. The priesthood who represented the fertility god. Hezekiah and again Jehoshaphat carry out bloody purges. But until the destruction of the temple of Nebuchadnezzar and the carrying away of the people into Mesopotamia, the worship of fertility continued. This is still this is this we know from the prophet's denunciations of the latest kings. Nevertheless, growth is of the nature of the mind of man. Consciousness evolves just as does the brain, the structure that consciousness participates. Though the fertility rites continued and gave some outlet to deep racial drives otherwise repressed, the forms are increasingly inadequate. It may be that they could help men not to become wholly sundered from their racial past. But they could not help men to make contemporary answers to a world that was seen increasingly in a light of reason and subject to the discipline and censorship of experience and sometimes of experiment. The rights themselves infected by reason rationalised their procedures. Therefore, instead of being regarded as psychophysical exercises for altering conduct, uh, character and consciousness, for reducing egotism by giving a direct sense of belonging to the general life, the right became magic for giving the individual egotist his personal desires and so confirming his obsession with his private selfishness. The process of consciousness growth was therefore with the rebels. A damaged birth is better than a still one. The heroic outburst was so frustrant and so violent that it obliterated, obliterated rather than recovered, resuscitated and made explicit the procedures that once had given not only solidarity to the tribe but also a comprehension of its environment. Nevertheless, man went on and so by anguish endured as agony. He attained at least enough understanding that even when the prestige image of the hero proved to be inadequate, it could be replaced in the minds of men by the ideal figure of the ascetic. In the following chapter, therefore, we trace the rise and fall of the hero, the co-conscious tribe's successor. And there we go. That was 
chapter one, looking at the co-conscious man. Um, I mean, this is sorry, this is still chapter one, say part one, and there's five parts. This one. Okay, so um, thanks for listening, and we ended there with uh, the album Ricochet by Tangerine Dream. I will we will listen to this for a bit and I will leave you so see you hopefully for uh, part chapter one part two looking at the proto-individual heroic self-assertive man